I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Linda Paston. I'm very happy about that. She grew up in New York City, graduated from Radcliffe, and got an M.A. from Brandeis. She has published 15 volumes of poetry, most recently Insomnia, which won the Towson University Literary Award and A Dog Runs Through It. Two of her books were finalists for the National Book Award. She taught at American U and was on the staff of Breadloaf Writers Conference up in Middlebury, Vermont, just up the road, for 20 years. She is a past poet laureate for the state of Maryland. She's won numerous awards, most notably, at least in my opinion, the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize for Lifetime Achievement. So, Linda, as I said, I'm so glad you got time to do this. Thank you. And I will start right off. I said I had a few statements here. I guess I'll consider them, uh, I hope, conversation starters. Somewhere along the line, when I was reading around about you, it appears that you said, making the reader see and feel always serves a political function. And I thought that's pretty interesting. I wouldn't mind hearing a little more about that, if you care to elaborate. Well, I've always thought that that the wrong the wrong political thought people who who are truly don't want to do anything to help the safety net to help people that are really struggling is a lack of imagination to what those people are really feeling um, and I think that if poetry can work on your imagination almost as if it were a muscle. Um, for example, just when when you have a metaphor and you have to connect two very different things, it, it makes your imagination do a little work that those those um, growing of the imagination will go into other things in the real world and make you more sympathetic and will serve what I consider a real political purpose. And I don't write many poems with explicit political messages, though I do have a few, but I think that that's all poetry does that work. At uh, least I hope so. Uh, say that's an interesting take. I haven't heard it explained quite that way, but poetry just by by forcing the reader's imagination, and, and if you're going to get anything from the poem, your empathic abilities... And that plays right into, uh, of course, social issues. How much do right. you or do you not care about everybody else? We're all in this together kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, how about reading a poem? We'll go back and forth oh. between chatting and okay. poems. Okay. Okay. Um, here's a short, simple one that that I do care about and come back to a lot. It's called What We Want. What we want is never simple. We move among the things we thought we wanted, a face, a room, an open book, and these things bear our names. Now they want us. But what we want appears in dreams, wearing disguises. We fall past holding at our arms, and in the morning, our arms ache. We don't remember the dream, 
but the dream remembers us. It is there all day, as an animal is there under the table, as the stars are there, even in full sun. That poem reminds me of something else I wanted to ask you about. That's good. Some poems, like that poem, it's, it, it could seem deceptively simple and straightforward. You know, we want these things. Uh, and yet there's this depth. And I was wondering if you or if anybody could articulate, how do you write poems like that? How do you make that happen? Oh, that's an impossible question to answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, one can teach the craft of poetry. That's what, what happens in MFA programs, I assume. Um, and one can take a really sloppy poem and edit it into something that, that's okay. But the, the magic part, the part that, that Emily Dickinson talks about making the hair stand up on your head when you hear it, that is very mysterious. I don't know where it comes from, and I'm always afraid it's going to disappear. Um, but competent poetry, which we get a lot of these days, to me, just isn't really poetry at all. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's like a pianist hitting all the right notes, but somehow it falls flat. Right. And, right. and then some other people just have the touch, and it's all different. Of course, I'm always wanting to write better poems, so I'm always looking for any clue to the mystery. You know, is there something you could do? Is there a little hint or something? So I thought I'd ask. I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I, I could call it up anytime I wanted to. Don't you think it's frustrating to care so much about something, like writing poems, and not having it under control? Like it's, it's a bit of it's out, that magic part's out of your control. I find right. that, you know, or like when you, uh, when you're trying to get an idea, and as you said, you have that one trick where you you throw lines in a drawer and come back to them later. But this idea right. about how to make it how to make it happen is just so interesting and fr also a little bit frustrating when it doesn't happen. Right. Well, there's there's another point of view that I also respect, which was. William Stafford's idea, he sat down every morning at about 5 a.m., and I knew this <laughs> to be a fact because he stayed with us once, and he was up at 5 working, and he would write a poem every day, and he said it didn't matter to him, or he didn't know which were good and which weren't. The, the point was in the writing, not in the product, and um, I, I really respect that, although I'm not sure I really believe that he didn't know which ones were really good <laughs> and which ones weren't. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he did. But, but the idea of, uh, I will admit I don't believe in writer's block. I mean, you, maybe you can't write something you think is good, but you can always write something. And then, Well, he, he made a big hit at the Breadloaf Writers Conference by saying that there's no such thing as writer's block if your standards are low enough. <laughs> Yeah, that's really good. Someone was just someone was just here at Bennington. I forget who it was, uh, guest reader, and uh, and she in a little seminar session was saying, "Don't worry about writing a crappy poem. It's not the end of the world. There are a lot worse things you could do. Go ahead, write a crappy poem." Students loved it. We'll, we'll listen to another poem. We gotta go. I want to be sure people get okay. a, a good sampling of poem. Well, a sampling of poems anyway. 
Okay, let's see what I have here. Okay, this is The Bronx, 1942. When I told him to shut up, my father slammed the brakes and left me like a parcel in the car on a strange street to punish me, he said, for lack of respect, that what he always feared was lack of love. I know now just how long forgiveness can take and that it can be harder than respect or even love. My father stayed angry for a week, but I still remember the gritty color of the sky through that windshield and how like a parcel I started to come apart. Whoa, that's interesting. I read some more, something else of yours. I read you mentioning how he didn't talk to you for a week. Right. And you told him right. to shut up, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Emily Dickinson earlier. And since we're recording this in December, it means it's close to her birthday. I thought I'd ask you a little something about her. Um, so in a poem of yours called Emily Dickinson, I can't believe the serendipity of this, I just came across it. You mentioned at the end of that poem that the legends about her won't explain sheer sanity of vision, the serious, what is it, serious, mischievous, the language. serious mischief of language. Yeah, serious mischief of language. That was my penmanship. And the economy of pain. Now, those are lovely descriptors. Boy, could you tell me some more about that? <laughs> I, I think they're, they're pretty self-explanatory. Um, I, I started reading Emily Dickinson when I was very, very young. Um, and she's one of the, the people that I... I mention when I'm accused of having two simple surfaces that, that I'm too accessible. Oh. Um, I mean, on some level, she's totally accessible, but then you go back and back and back and keep finding new things. And that's what I hope that I'm doing, at least in some of my work, that the, the surfaces may seem sure. simple, but but they're there's much more going on underneath. And I do think that you have to have something on the surface to draw the reader in. I, I really don't like poems that are, you just don't know what you're reading. They're so difficult. Um, I don't see the point of that. So I have been accused often. Um, and I've been accused of writing about ordinary things. When men write about household things, they get lots and lots of praise. When women do, they, they get put down. And that has always been true. And I actually have a poem, if I can find it, that I'll read called The Ordinary, which is a kind of answer, I think, to those occupations. Anyway, it's called The Ordinary. Super. It may happen on a day of ordinary weather, the usual assembled flowers or fallen leaves disheveling the grass. You may be feeding the dog or sipping a cup of tea and then the telegram or the phone call or the sharp pain traveling the length of your left arm or his. And as your life is switched to a different track, the landscape through grimy windows, almost the same, though entirely different. 
you wonder why the wind doesn't rage and blow as it does so convincingly in Lear, for instance. It is pathetic fallacy you long for, the roses nothing but their thorns, the downed leaves subject for a body count. And as you lie in bed like an effigy of yourself, it is the ordinary that comes to save you, the china teacup waiting to be washed, the old dog whining to go out. Uh, the ordinary that saved you saves you. That's really yes. Yeah, that's lovely and true. But it 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 is so interesting again where you, you know, as, as we tell everybody, show don't tell. You describe, you know, the poet describes some ordinary thing, and uh, and that's a show don't tell. If if my dog barks in the background here, it'll be very appropriate because yeah. I my my really latest book is called The Dog Runs Through It, and I have collected dog poems over the many years dogs have run through my entire life. That's great. Do you have those available to read on? Yeah, sure. I can read a couple yeah. of those. Maybe he'll, um, he'll maybe he'll moan a little bit or something. <laughs> right, right. I, um, wait a minute. Okay, this is called the new dog. Into the gravity of my life, the serious ceremonies of polish and paper and pen, has come this manic animal whose innocent disruptions make nonsense of my old simplicities, as if I needed him to prove again that after all the careful planning, anything can happen. <laughs> and here's one. This is one of my favorites. It's called In the Garden. I tell my dog to sit, and he sits, and I give him a biscuit. I tell him to come, and he comes and sits, and I give him a biscuit again. I tell my dog, lie down, and he sits, looking up at me with trust and adoration. I pause. I give him a biscuit. <laughs> this is the beginning of love and disobedience. I was never meant to be a god. <laughs> and let me read one more a serious sure, yeah. dog poem. This is... Um, I don't know if you know the work of the poet Roland Flint, who died much too early, but if you don't, you should look for it mm -hmm. because he was a wonderful poet. And this is called River Mist for Roland Flint. When the kennel where my ridgeback died some 30 years ago wrote to ask for my business again, offering us one free night's board for every three nights paid, I looked at the name on the envelope, River Mist, imagining they were writing to say that Mowgli was somehow alive, the sword-like blade of fur still bristling on his back, that he had waited all these years for me to pick him up. And though I've had four dogs since, a small one at my feet right now, each running too swiftly through his life and mine, I could have wept thinking of rivers, and mists, how in their wavering shadows they had prefigured and concealed the losses to come, mother and uncles, friends, and Roland now, so newly dead, 
who on the flyleaf of an early book once wrote in his careful, redemptive hand, with love for Linda and Ira and for Mowgli. Mm. I I had to... um, well, I, I published that in the Atlantic, and the Atlantic had to show it to a lawyer to make sure that the kennel, the real kennel rivermist, couldn't <laughs> sue me about that. <laughs> yeah, somebody was telling me recently about that somebody, they couldn't get their poem published right away. I don't know if it was a New Yorker or something, because it hadn't been fact-checked yet. So, right. So the, the, the New Yorker fact-checking can be very intense and when you make things up for a poem that aren't factual you have to fight for them to let you keep it in you think they'd have a subcategory of poetry fact checking or something that would right understand right. that <laughs> that's really interesting I, i'm looking at my notes here i had something else I, oh yeah that uh that thing i sent you that little quote where it said uh, i found it on the poetry foundation website and whoever wrote it said that you are interested in the anxieties that exist under the surface of everyday life. I think I, I really noticed it because um, I guess I don't think of your poetry that way. Maybe I don't pick up enough on the anxieties and that's my <laughs> reading or what, but I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I think that's pretty accurate. It's it's not necessarily the anxieties, but the losses that okay. are just waiting to catch up to, to the most wonderful things. I, I think if I had one theme that I had to name, it would be loss um, that I from the f- beginning. That I understand, yes, yes. Okay, do you have, do you have um, something, well, you have a lot of poems with that. As you said, it's one of your major, your major theme, really. Uh, the unpredictability and the potential for loss is always there. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what what poem I have that would be particularly about that. I, I don't know. Don't overwork on that. Oh, one. okay. Now I I oh. do know. Okay. Um, it's actually the title poem of one of my books, um, an early afterlife, and I started with a quote from Horace: "A wise man in time of peace shall make the necessary preparations for war." and early afterlife. Why don't we say goodbye right now in the fallacy of perfect health before whatever is going to happen happens? We could perfect our parting like those characters in On the Beach who said farewell in the shadow of the bomb as we sat watching, young, and holding hands at the movies. We could use the loving words we otherwise might not have time to say. We could hold each other for hours in a quintessential dress rehearsal. Then we would just continue for however many years were left. The ragged things that are coming next, arteries closing like rivers silting over, or rampant cells stampeding us to the exit, would be like postscripts to our lives and wouldn't matter. And we would bask in an early afterlife of ordinary days, impervious to the inclement weather already in our long-range forecast. Nothing could touch us. We'd never have to say goodbye again. Yeah, I'd say that hits it. Yes. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, briefly at least, um, when I when I searched for you online, 
I was interested to see what was on YouTube, you know, um, readings, interviews, and also some videos that kids had made for your poem about the daughter leaving home. Have you seen those? I, I, have, I haven't seen <laughs> are, those. There's, there's, I, as I say, I don't use the computer except for email very much. So I, I, I know what YouTube is, but it's nothing that I've ever looked at. There's actually more than one. So apparently, well, the poem really speaks to, it looked it look like maybe um, high school kids. And uh, maybe they're about to go to college, I don't know. But uh, there are videos. Uh, so you go to YouTube.com and put your name in. <laughs> And and this stuff will all come up, and you have a choice of what to look at. And a couple of them were videos that kids had made of uh, for the daughter leaving home. <laughs> really well, that interesting. Is, um, when when Billy Collins was, um, uh -huh. I don't know if, if they called it poet laureate then or yeah. it was just consultant in poetry. Yeah, I think he was. But he, yeah. he he put together a, a long list of poems that he would let high schools use, they could, he would send them a poem and they would read it over their loudspeaker and the only proviso was that they not talk in class about what does this mean. They would just enjoy <laughs> the poem. And To a Daughter Leaving Home was one of them, so it probably went to a lot of high schools. But um, I can see if I can find that and read it. Oh, great. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really poem. You can, I see it striking a lot of people. It just yeah. it's a basic experience that a lot of people are, are part of it on one side or the other. Here it is: to a daughter leaving home. When I taught you at eight to ride a bicycle, loping along beside you as you wobbled away on two round wheels, my own mouth rounding in surprise when you pulled ahead down the curved path of the park. I kept waiting for the thud of your crash as I sprinted to catch up while you grew smaller, more breakable with distance, pumping, pumping for your life, screaming with laughter, the hair flapping behind you like a handkerchief waving goodbye. Um, you can't tell this from hearing it, but that's all one long sentence because I wanted the reader to get kind of breathless oh. reading it without any pauses, just as if he were riding a bicycle. Um, but I have had the strangest responses to that poem. Um, somebody called me up and asked me, I mean, I... <laughs> If I wrote the poem as a penance because I had driven my daughter away from home, oh, wow. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, I thought she left home to go to college. But um, you, you, you get some pretty wild responses <laughs> to oh. your work. I also, people are very upset when they learn that I never taught my daughter to ride a bicycle. Oh, my no. husband taught her to ride a bicycle. I don't oh. ride a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> People get very upset when poems, as I don't know who, Auden or Frost, somebody said lie in order to tell the truth. Right. So, so they're they're disturbed that you appropriated your husband's noble deed for your right. own. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, I love that. That's really good <laughs> and exactly true. You know, of course we have to lie. I mean, it's art. Right. It's, it's a poem um, based on reality, maybe. I guess maybe is the best we can say. 
Well, Lind, I see by golly that our time's about up. If you, unless you have another poem you would like to read, that'd be fine. And then we'll wrap okay. it up. I would like to end, if I can find it, sure. on a poem that is was written with a, a political um, mm. message in mind about global warming. And it's also, people ask me why I don't write in form more. I write a lot in form, and this is a pantoum, and it's called, which is a poem based on the repetition of lines in a certain order. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, this is another pantoum. Um, but this would also be a good poem to end on. It isn't a political poem, but it's, it's a poem in, in form, and it's a poem that I care about. So yeah. shall I end on this? Perfect, sure. Okay. Something about the trees. I remember what my father told me. There is an age when you are most yourself. He was just past 50 then. Was it something about the trees that made him speak? There is an age when you are most yourself. I know more now than I did once. Was it something about the trees that made him speak? Only a single leaf had turned so far. I know more now than I did once. I used to think he'd always be the surgeon. Only a single leaf had turned so far. Even his body kept its secrets. I used to think he'd always be the surgeon. My mother was the perfect surgeon's wife. Even his body kept its secrets. I thought they both would live forever. My mother was the perfect surgeon's wife. I still can see her face at 30 I thought they both would live forever. I thought I'd always be their child. I still can see her face at 30. When will I be most myself? I thought I'd always be their child. In my sleep, it's never winter. When will I be most myself? I remember what my father told me. In my sleep, it's never winter. He was just past 50 then. Thank I'm glad. I'm really glad you read that because you said, it, you know, it means a lot to you. You like it a lot. And that's important to me that you put out these poems that, that you care about. Right. Okay. All right. So, folks, you are listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I am your host, Charlie Rossiter, and we have been visiting with Linda Paston, hearing her views on poetry and other things and hearing her wonderful poetry. So, folks, join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.